Please remain standing for our scripture reading. So every week we go to the scriptures because it's there that we see the person and the work of Jesus most clearly revealed. This morning, our sermon text is out of Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. You can find it on page 965 of the Bible in the pew back, uh, or it will be projected behind me. So hear the, the word of the Lord from Matthew 7, 7 through 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts, good things to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peace be with you. <laughs> well, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome again to Sojourn Heights. My name is Dodds, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really good to be with you this morning. Over the past few months, we have been in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, turning our attention particularly to the Sermon on the Mount in order to consider what human flourishing looks like in God's kingdom. And Jesus has been teaching about a, a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees and scribes and how we can live in a way that fulfills that righteousness in light of the coming kingdom. And these verses today, as you just heard, are among some of the most encouraging and hope-giving words of Jesus' sermon. It's here that we see the, the intimacy of Christ the heart of the Father and his intentions with us as his children. We also see where our hearts and intentions will be with others as the Holy Spirit fashions us more and more keenly into the image of Christ. Last week, Raph Peters preached a, a wonderful sermon uh, about the call of God's people to practice sound judgment and discernment while not taking the place of the judge. In the last verse of the text that day, we read this. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let me, let me explain a little bit of why we're going to start here today. As, as Raph said last week, dogs and pigs were pictures of Rome and the Gentiles. So in this context, Jesus seems to be giving Israel a warning concerning their relationship with Rome and with the world. At this time, Israel was slowly putting more and more of its faith in the Romans, looking to them for security. And even though they hated the Romans, they still felt very protected by them. And they were very concerned about not being seen as rebels against Caesar as their king. And so when Jesus mentions pearls and pigs and logs and dogs, he's warning Israel not to condemn the world, nor to entrust themselves or the care of holy things to Gentile powers, which was a constant temptation for Israel throughout her history. 
They had turned to the Arameans when Assyria came and attacked them. They had looked to Egypt for protection when Babylon came and attacked. And they often played this political game with earthly powers in order to keep themselves protected. And at times, they even took holy things from the temple and actually gave them to their oppressors. They were throwing their place as God's chosen representatives to dogs. They were leaving their work of world renewal to pigs to be trampled. And Jesus says to them, if you look to the Gentiles and the Romans as your great protectors, the ones who you really can trust, you will be devoured and trampled. It's a warning for us as well. Because we often can look to those in power for our security and strength. As the church, we can defile holy things just to secure favor with different political parties and with people who have power within society. We can be tempted to do things or say things to affirm or appease those in power and get them on our side or get us on their side. We can become most concerned with cultivating social and political favor. And as a result, we can be in danger of defiling the things of God and of failing to bear faithful witness to the world through obedience. So Jesus is asking Israel and us to recognize who we trust above all else. And instead of being left to trust man and earthly powers, he gives us a glorious alternative. Trust the Lord. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his sons asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So Jesus says to us, instead of judging your brother, judging your sister, and entrusting yourselves to the powers of the world in order to secure your own protection, trust God and draw near to the Father, the very one who called you out of slavery and rescued you. Jesus articulates straightforward invitation and promises. Ask, seek, knock. It's, it's very reminiscent of Solomon's writing in Proverbs 8. Those who seek me with their whole heart, find me. Everyone who asks from the Father receives. The one who seeks him finds him. The one who knocks has the door opened to them. And he adds this, this wonderful parable to reinforce the point. And he starts with us, which is astounding. He doesn't start with himself. He starts with us. He says, even you, you, human fathers, what kind of good do you want to do to your kids? You want to give good things to your kids. If your son asked you for bread, would you, would you give them a rock? That would be unkind. Or a fish, would you give them a serpent? No, that would be harmful. 
So given the fact that you are sinful, evil, and selfish, but you know how to give your children good things, what do you think your father, who is sinless and holy and hospitable and only good, would do when he is asked for something? We have a generous father who is not out to harm us. See, what Jesus does here, he is, he's already taught his disciples how to pray. But now Jesus wants to get across a more fundamental point. He's not, interesting, he's not interested so much in the how-to, but in the who-to. What gives shape and energy and fervency and intimacy to our prayers is the confidence that when we pray, we pray to our heavenly Father and he responds. The emphasis here is not on the persistent character or the skill of the one praying. No, the emphasis is on the good God who is a good father. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Horse and His Boy, Shasta, the, the main character, endures this really long journey in which nothing seems to go right. And being very tired and having having nothing inside of him, barefooted in the dark, Shasta feels so horrible and sorry for himself that he begins to weep. And as all hope is fading, he, he notices a quiet presence walking beside him. It's pitch dark, he can't see anything. And this person is going so quietly that he can hardly hear any footfalls. But what he can hear is this, this deep breathing in and out. His invisible companion seems to breathe in this very large scale. And it's, it's Aslan, the, the, the Christ figure in this book, who has been accompanying him through, through all of his difficulties. And Shasta says, who are you? And Aslan responds, the one who has waited long for you to speak. The boy says, I, but I can't see you at all. And he says, tell me your sorrows. It, it could be argued that there are two struggles of humanity, hard circumstances and hard hearts. It is not always easy to talk openly with the Lord. We do need help, but it's, if we're honest, it's difficult to actually ask him for it. But why? Why is it hard for us to do this? Perhaps in our anxiety and our distress, our fear, we know we are needy, but our, but our instincts are more often given to worrying our way through all of the possible doomsday scenarios so we can be prepared and so we don't, we don't turn to him. We don't seek him. Maybe in our guilt and shame, we, we self-deprecate our way through a forced penance so that we can feel in some way absolved or forgiven. And we deal with those things away from him. Maybe being reformed has us using God's sovereignty to excuse our pessimism or our cynicism over what he will hear or what he won't. And yet Jesus, our king, urges us to seek the Father in all of these places. 
our inclination, such as we are, fallen and broken and sinful, is, is to live self-sufficient lives. And so when there is trouble, we first try to figure it out, and then when we can't, we worry as if there's no one who cares or hears, as if there's no one walking right beside us. Or perhaps we give God a cold shoulder because he didn't give us what we hoped for. Or we hide because we long to continue cherishing our secret sins in our private worlds. And the people of Israel, people of Israel were the same. They're the same as us, we're the same as them. And God said this to them in the, in the book of Hosea. He said, they do not cry to me from the heart but they wail upon their beds. Wailing on our beds is easy and natural. But crying out to the Lord in prayer, that is the way of the kingdom. Asking, seeking, knocking, it's the way that we build the kingdom. It's a gift from the Spirit, but it's, all, it's, all, it's also the most human and childlike thing that we can do. Because sojourn, real life begins with, Lord, help me, I need you. Psalms scream and sing of this dependency. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. We have every invitation to come, no reason to resist, and every confidence that he will give what is good because he is a good father and he gives good gifts. And just like Aslan, he is waiting for us to speak. He's waiting for you to speak. Who are you? One who has waited long for you to speak. your heart, your fears, yourself. Tell me your sorrows. And he won't devour you or trample you like the world will. If, if you think that God has good things but refuses to share them, then if that's where we land, if that's where you land, then I think what we've done is we've fallen into the enemy's temptation. This is precisely what the serpent told Eve. God wants to keep his good gifts for himself. He won't share. God is not the father who gives to those who ask. He is a cheap and selfish father. He is stingy, like a dragon holding his treasures in a castle. Perhaps we think that Jesus is talking here about a God who has overcommitted to us. Can he really tell us that if we ask, we will receive? If we seek, that we'll find? If we knock, that the door will be opened? He seems to have overcommitted. Is Jesus making a promise that the Father can't deliver? If he has, then we need to protect, we need to protect him from his own enthusiasm by not asking. 
we might say that Jesus was a bit rash, and so we need to provide the qualifications that he has left out. But brothers and sisters, God does not need our loopholes. He has committed just as much as he wanted to commit, and he has committed everything. He is sovereign, he is infinite, and he has put all of his infinite resources to work for his church, his bride, his beloved, for you. He has been so committed to us that he has sent his son to the cross. Does that sound like a father who is worried about being overcommitted? Does that sound like a God of the fine print and the loopholes and the technicalities? It's actually because God is sovereign that we can absolutely be sure that he hears and answers our prayers. It's this very reality that should challenge our stoicism and our inaction, our pessimism, our cynicism. And what's going on, you may ask, I know that we'll all ask, what is going on when we don't get what we ask? Well, I can tell you this, it may be many things. But Jesus makes it clear that one thing, it is definitely not going on. This is not God giving you stones for bread. This is not God evading you or keeping the door locked. Because he doesn't do that. Ever. He always gives, gives good gifts to his children. Always. God always gives us what you ask. He always gives us what we ask. Or something even better. So ask and seek and knock and trust. Your Father is with you every step you take, every decision you make. Like Aslan with Shasta, believe Jesus and pray. And that brings us to our final verse today. Um, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. A generation before Jesus, there was a, a famous story of a proselyte approaching the Pharisees with a question, and he asked, can you explain the entirety of the Torah while I'm standing on one leg? And one teacher responded with, what is hateful to you do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. And all of this goes back to Leviticus 19 where we find the original form of this statement. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so while first century Palestinian Jews were acquainted with a negative version which warned against harm, Jesus and Moses' words advance a positive version which actually requires not just doing no harm, but demonstrations of love. 
This is the law and the prophets, as Jesus is saying here. In other words, this teaching is a proper summary of what it means to fulfill the teachings of Scripture. And Paul will say later, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The one who loves another fulfills the law. This, this is simply the most basic and important demand of the law, and it's, it states the true end of the Torah. The whole law and prophets is about doing good to others, the kind of good that we want them to do to us. We don't act toward others as they deserve. We act as we want them to act towards us. That's, this is the justice of Christ. In this world, we believe that justice is giving people what they deserve, but that, that kind of justice can only promise to set all accounts back to zero. And our worldly justice doesn't even do that anyway. The justice of this world can take an eye for an eye, a life for a life, but it cannot give people sight, and it can't bring people back from the dead. The justice of the kingdom is mercy. The justice of Christ restores sight and life. And Jesus' justice restores and blesses. It rebuilds and fills. God our Father gives us good gifts. And we imitate him as we give good gifts to one another. We see how God acts with us in wisdom and patience correction, kindness, discipline, and provision, and we imitate him in his love and wisdom toward one another as siblings. So maybe a good question to, to ask, how, how do people feel treated by you? Have you ever asked that to a friend? How do I treat you? How do you treat your children, your spouse, your roommate, your coworkers? Have you ever asked them, parents, have you ever asked your children, how, how does daddy treat you? How does mommy treat you? How, how do you treat your most difficult relationships? It's one thing to say, I think about most of the time how I'm doing in my best relationships. What about my worst? What about my most difficult? How is that relationship? How am I treating that person? To quote Jonathan Pennington, the, the golden rule isn't really a rule, but a vision of human flourishing. It's, it's not the golden rule, it's the golden vision. It's a greater righteousness and fulfillment of the whole law. This, this whole passage is describing a way of being in the world, a family and individuals in a family. We draw near to God in prayer. We receive good things. We draw near to one another and we treat others the way that we want to be treated and we share good things. And we do it over and over and over and over. And the kingdom comes. See, Matthew shows us here that Jesus isn't a relentless legalist or a stern perfectionist. He has the heart of a shepherd. 
The entire Sermon on the Mount is a sermon of mercy and compassion. And we have hope because the Spirit's work in us, anchored by Christ's work for us, will draw us near to our Father and near to one another. As a lover of men and women and children, Jesus heals the afflicted and offers encouragement. He forgives sin and exhibits mercy. He shows compassion and gives rest to the weary. And having done all this, he does even more as he hands over his own life for the sake of others and comes back to give life. Jesus is the lover and we love because he first loved us. Before we pray, I just wanted to say just a few things. Number one, I I really want to encourage all of you to take this passage and in your parishes as you're gathering this week with people that you are studying the scriptures with, I want to encourage you to take this passage and the passage in Luke, Luke 11, verses 5 through 13, And I want you to compare and contrast those two two gospels. There are some really great similarities and differences that that I've really enjoyed studying that that did not make it into this sermon, but I really want you to see them because I think they're incredibly beautiful and they help sort of define and translate for one another. And I think there's just some really wonderful things to see there. I hope you enjoy that. Secondly, and, and finally, I, I felt particularly moved by something that emerged during study, not only with this passage, but also in conjunction with last week. If we read verses 1 through 12 of chapter 7, there, there is a consistent theme here of drawing close, of drawing near. We draw close to the Lord in repentance when we have logs removed from our own eyes. We draw close to others in love to remove specks. We draw close to the Lord in our asking and seeking and knocking, and we get close to neighbors and and the nations, inviting them to draw close to us and to the Lord in his compassion and mercy. There's all of this nearness and moving towards other people, moving towards the Lord moving towards brothers and sisters, moving towards neighbors and those who don't know the Lord. So I really want you to take a look at these verses again and see here, there's not one movement that isn't personal. Not one bit of this is impersonal. And what I mean by that is that this living necessitates intimacy. We're honest with ourselves. We're humbled by our sin. We're contrite in our self-assessment. And with that, we go to brothers and sisters and we get close. As the Spirit comes to live in us, he makes a home in us. It gets personal. The work that he's doing, the work that we're doing with neighbors and family members and coworkers, it's personal. 
drawing near to the Lord and saying, help, I need you. It's personal. We deal with specks in each other's eyes. Think about how delicate the eye is. It's such a delicate organ that deserves kindness and gentility. We go slow. We get close. You can't pick specks out from a distance. We go in earnest to the Lord Seeking, asking, knocking, this progressive nearness with these words brings us right to the doorstep of God. And then we entreat one another in a method of humility and love. So I want you to look at those things and think about your relationships. Think about your dealings with the Lord. Where is it personal? Where in your prayers is it personal? Where with your relationships is it personal? Where is it impersonal? Where is there distance? Where is there? It's always wonderful to ask people how their days are, how their work is. But what questions are we asking in parishes and as family members? What what questions are we asking within our relationships with our roommates and our spouses? What questions are we asking that gets personal? that gets close, that gets intimate. Tell me, tell me your fears. Tell me what you love. Where are we excited? What gives you rest? <laughs> Where are you pulling away in relationship? Where are you pulling away from the Lord? And when you know these things, when you start asking these questions, start, start talking to one another about it. We have a God who incarnated and got close. It got personal. He left his spirit. His spirit came. It gets personal. And it is going to be that way. I, I pray that it's a mark of our church that, that here that we're personal with the Lord and personal with each other. To that end, let's pray. Father, We hear your words, and so we come asking. We come this morning seeking. We come this morning knocking and praying in confidence that we know that you hear us or that you are so close even now as your spirit is working within your body and as the spirit is praying for us, as Jesus, you are interceding for us where there is so much prayer and care happening right now. And so, Lord, we come, we come to you and we come wanting this to be personal. Lord, remove logs. Help us to remove specks. Help us to draw near to you. Help us, Lord, to love one another in a way where we imitate the good gift-giving that you do. Where we bring people food. We bring people care and love and attention and, and discipline and correction, all of the good things that you give us. Words of love, words of confidence, words of life. Reviving each other with your word, reviving each other by the power of your spirit that's at work in, by the word. Lord, would, would you make us a, a personal people who love you 
and trust you, who look to you, not to the world, not to, not to any other power, but, your, but you, your throne that hasn't crumbled in COVID, that hasn't crumbled in any, in any season. Lord, help us. We look to you. We trust you. Help us. Help us. We ask it in your name. Amen.